Please be seated, especially if you're from Chicago. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever been surprised by being treated rudely? Has anybody ever surprised you by treating you rudely when you didn't expect it? How does that feel? Is that a good feeling? I went through that on the internet this week. Some woman some woman decided she had my number. She didn't even have the right area code. But, man, she just went at me hammer and tongs. And I made the mistake of trying to defend my honor and my reputation to her. That was a big mistake. That was a waste of time. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody treated you with courtesy and kindness when you didn't expect it? How was that? Was that... Was that I see a tremendous smile on Shantae's face here. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Uh, I, yeah, I want you to know, just this is not in my notes, but I'll just say this now. There is hardly anything that I can think of in life that is more powerful than unexpected kindness. It is, it's just a remarkable, remarkable thing. We're told that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living, that anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. And today we're going to be looking at one of those teachings from scripture. Our purpose will be to be equipped by God for the good work of changing the world for the better, tikkun olam. Specifically, with the help of scripture, we're going to work to change the way we speak to and about other people. And to change the way that other people speak to and about others. We're going to be looking first at our Torah reading, second at our Haftarah reading, third, we'll be looking at a teaching from Yeshua, and then we're going to be looking at ourselves. So before we do that, would you join me in a word of prayer? Come, wind of the Spirit. Breathe on these dry bones. Take out our hearts of stone. Give us a heart of flesh. Let there be a sound of rushing mighty wind. Let there be a spiritual earthquake. Let there be transformation. Deliver us from respectable oratory. Come, Holy Spirit.
shake us up, fix the world. We ask in Yeshua's name. Amen. Today's Torah reading opens with a series of four illustrations. And there's the service title, there's the title, Dealing with Our Plague of Locusts. Is a plague of locusts a good thing? Terrible thing. What happens when a plague of locusts comes? What does it do? Pardon me? It destroys everything green, everything alive. It, it just wipes it out. And I'm speaking of the speech habits that have become the rule in our society as a kind of plague of locusts. That is, eating up whatever is beautiful, living, uh, and alive in our society. I take this very seriously. It's like a plague of locusts. Today's reading opens with a series of four illustrations of one of the central cultural values of the entire Bible, one of the central cultural values of Judaism. It's a value that's almost gone in our day, and I mean that. What is that cultural value, you ask? It's treating people honorably and avoiding treating people honorably and avoiding shaming them. That is the cultural value in question. Hold on one moment. For those of you listening, somebody just came in and handed me ten thousand dollars. <laughs> in appreciation for my sermon, and I just interrupted in order to receive that money. Getting back to the tape now. Okay. It's a value which is almost gone in our day, and it is the value of treating people honorably and not shaming them. I'm going to say it again. Treating people honorably and not shaming them. As I said, our Torah passage begins with four examples of this, and I want to look at these briefly. Would you go to the next slide, please? We're going to be look, uh, go to the next one. Okay, here's the four examples. The first one is a woman captured as a prisoner of war. When you go out to war against your enemies and Adonai, your God, hands them over to you, and you take prisoners, and you see among the prisoners a woman who looks good to you, and you feel attracted to her, and you want her for your wife. You ought to bring her to your home, her home to your house, where she will shave her head, cut her fingernails, and remove her prison clothing. She's going to go into a period of mourning. Uh, she will stay there in your house, mourning her father and her mother, because she's separated from them now, for a full month after which you may go into her and have sexual relations with her and be her husband, and she will be your wife. In the event that you lose interest in her, you are to let her go wherever she wishes, but you may not sell her for money or treat her like a slave because you humiliated her by casting her away. This is an extraordinary passage. Now, some of us, may be quick to stand in judgment of this. But I would counsel us to be more aware of certain things before we jump to that conclusion. 
Because I don't want you to compare this passage with what might happen in Santa Monica in 2020. Or 2019. I want you to consider Boko Haram of Nigeria. Because the culture of Boko Haram is like the cultures around Israel at this time. Women and girls were kidnapped by the Nigerian Islamist group Boko Haram and they're raped and forced to marry fighters even if they are underage, according to testimonies from women who've escaped from the group. New York-based Human Rights Watch estimates that this militant group has abducted about 500 girls and women from northern Nigeria since 2009. 500. Earlier this year, or earlier, I guess it was two years ago, uh, Boko Haram kidnapped 276 girls from a secondary school in the town of Chibok in the northeast of the country. 57 of the girls have escaped and 219 of them are still in captivity. One of the motivations for these kidnappings is to punish women who seek education. One victim who was kidnapped while traveling home from school in Kondunga said that when the militants found out that she and her friends were students, they said, Aha! These are the people we are looking for. So you are the ones with strong heads who insist on attending school. When we have said Boko is Haram, we will kill you today. Boko Haram's name means roughly Western education is a sin. So they're trying to wipe out women being educated. And to do that, they kidnap them, they rape them, they make them their spouses as young as the age of five. Then they wait until the girl reaches puberty before they have sex with her. But she's a slave or a wife, real nice. That is what is going around out on around Israel at the time when this extraordinary passage is written. Let's look at ISIS. That's even more like the cultures around Israel, because ISIS was from is in Assyria, from Assyria, from that that area. According to Iraqi reports, ISIS has executed hundreds of Muslim women and their relatives for refusing to marry ISIS fighters. ISIS has brutal disregard for women within its territorial control. First-hand reports indicate that ISIS repeatedly abuses and mistreats women in its territory, enslaving and molesting non-Muslim women and girls, that's Christians, and abusing and restricting the movements of Muslim women and girls, all females within ISIS-held territory, slaves and non-slaves alike, can be married by ISIS militants as young as nine years old, according to rulings issued by ISIS. These kinds of behavior are very ancient in this area. And they're the ways women were apt to be treated when they were taken as prisoners of war. So if we're going to evaluate what the Torah just said to us, we need to compare it with this. And you realize the Torah passage you just read is stunning. The woman is to be brought in. She's to be allowed to mourn her parents. 
uh, then afterwards you may take her as your wife, but if you decide you don't want her, then you let her go. You may not treat her like a slave. You, leave, you give her her dignity because you humiliated her. Who cares about the humiliation of slaves, of prisoners captured in war? God cares. And he wants us to care. The second illustration is the less beloved wife in a uh, plural marriage. I want to talk about plural marriages for a minute. It's not about sex. Um, It's uh, about the fact that women had no place where they could earn money, where they could they could take care of themselves unless they had a, a, a brother or a father to take care of them. There's a story that one of my professors told, Charles Kraft, told he was a missionary in Nigeria in the 1950s. And the, the churches, from the, the American-planted churches there had a... Had a a rule that you couldn't become a member of the church if you had more than one wife. Well, this was a Muslim, folk Muslim area where having more than one wife was normal. Any man who was competent demonstrated that he was competent by being able to afford more than one wife. And he would protect her and feed her and raise her children. And it was a matter of great honor. But this, this missionary society just didn't like that. So a man wanted to join the church, and, and, he, uh, and they wouldn't let him join, so he went home, and he killed his second wife. Church was scandalized. Why'd you do that? He said, well, if I divorced her, there's no way for her to go. She'd have to become a prostitute. It was the kindest thing I could do. So that's a different culture. So... Realize that plural marriage is very old in the Bible. Abraham had more than one wife. Moses had more than one wife. And suppose a man has two wives. The one is loved and the other is unloved. And both the loved and the unloved wife have borne him children. If the firstborn son of the child of the un, if the firstborn son is the child of the unloved wife, then when it comes time for him to pass the inheritance on to his sons. He may not give the inheritance due to the firstborn to the son of the loved wife in place of the son of the unloved one who is in fact the firstborn. No, he must acknowledge as firstborn the son of the unloved wife by giving him a double portion of everything he owns for he is the firstfruits of his manhood and the right of the firstborn is his. Here, the Torah protects the honor of an unloved wife and of a baby. That's hot stuff. Again, it's this cultural value of not shaming someone. You don't shame this woman that's captured as a prisoner of war who you take as a wife. You don't humiliate her. And you don't take her like she's your property. You give her 30 days to mourn uh, the change of her life. And if you don't, if you decide that she's not your cup of tea, you don't sell her like a slave. You let her go free. Don't humiliate Because you've humiliated her by choosing her and then rejecting her. And here, this baby has rights. And this unloved woman has rights. So, again, it's showing proper honor 
and not shaming. Third illustration, the stubborn, rebellious, disrespectful son. If a man has a stubborn, rebellious son who will not obey what his father and mother says, and even after they discipline him, he still refuses to pay attention to them, then his father and mother would take him, take hold of him and bring him out to the leaders of his town at the gate of that place and say to the leaders of his town, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't pay attention to us. He lives wildly. He gets drunk. Then all the men of the town are to stone him to death. In this way, you will put an end to such wickedness among you and all Israel will hear about it and be afraid. Now, what is the fundamental sin of this rebellious son? It's his contempt for his parents. It's his, he just can't be bothered showing them any kind of respect. Uh, it's the same as the others. It's all about honor and shame. This young man doesn't honor his parents. His parents, he brings shame to them, to his entire family line. He brings shame to his tribe, to his people. He's like a cancer in the midst of the encampment of Israel, a person who cannot or will not honor his father and mother, is sure to be a blight on society. For his parents, his family, his tribe, his extended family, his clan, his people, to tolerate this would itself be shameful. They should not tolerate this. I went to school with a guy named B.J. B.J. was a man from India. No money, absolutely nothing. He came to America to get a, a doctoral degree, I think even a D-men degree, which is the simplest form of a doctorate. But he had no money, so he worked at Fuller Seminary. And I, I knew him there for about 20 years. He was away from his family. But one of my professors said, when this man gets his doctorate, he will add honor to his family for generations. See, that's the way it is in an honor-shame society. B.J., if he gets his doctorate, the whole family ends up being uplifted in the eyes of the community. So he made a tremendous sacrifice. The fourth illustration, the corpse of an executed murderer. Same chapter. If someone has committed a capital crime and is put to death and then hung on a tree, his body is not to remain all night on the tree, but you must bury him the same day because the person who has been hanged has been cursed by God so that you will not defile the land which Adonai your God has given you to inherit. On the one hand, the holy land must not be defiled and must be honored by not having this criminal's hanging corpse remain exposed in the Holy Land. But also, even though this person is an executed murderer, he remains a bearer of the image of God. And it is forbidden to dishonor and to shame him by leaving him exposed in that manner. So even the corpse of an executed murderer should be treated with honor. Each of these four stories underscores this one cultural value, honor, kavod, and its contrasting twin, shame. 
A prisoner of war must be treated with honor. A less loved wife must be treated with honor. One's parents must be treated with honor. And even the corpse of an executed murderer must be treated with honor. We have looked at our Torah reading. Now let's look at the Haftorah reading briefly. Here is how it begins. Notice the emphasis on honor and shame. Sing, barren woman who has never had a child. Burst into song. Shout for joy, you who have never been in labor. For the deserted wife will have more children than the woman who is living with a husband. In that culture, for a woman to not have children was uh, shameful. It was... It, uh, sh- think of Hannah, uh, uh, who uh, didn't have a child. and It, it grieved her greatly. Her, her, her co-wife, Panina, used to tease her every year when they came up to offer sacrifices. And she would tease her because she, she was barren. Enlarge the place of your tent, woman. Extend the curtains of your dwelling. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Make your tent firms, tent pegs firm. For you will spread out to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations and inhabit the desolated city. So your fortunes are going to turn. Don't be afraid. You won't be ashamed. Don't be discouraged. You won't be disgraced. disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth. You will no longer remember the dishonor of being widowed. For your husband is your maker. Adonai Tzafaot is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He will be called the God of all the earth. He has called you back like a wife abandoned and grief-stricken. A wife married in her youth cannot be rejected, says your God. Briefly I abandon you, but with great compassion I'm taking you back. I was angry for a moment, but with everlasting grace I have compassion on you. Etc., etc. There again, we see shame and honor. Shame and honor. Now let's look at ourselves. In some, although not all, segments of our culture, the issue of shame for being childless or, uh, or for being unmarried is still a stigma for women. We would all agree that this is unjust. It's also unkind. In fact, it's ungodly. The God who protects the dignity of the corpse of murderers cannot be pleased with how we dishonor the childless, unmarried, and unattractive woman. I have always been sensitive to how women are treated and mistreated. I see now that this has been a godly attribute even when I forget it from time to time. I've also noted that in our culture, if a man looks sloppy, it's okay, he's a slob. This will be written off. But for a woman to appear in public in a sloppy manner is for her to court disapproval, and people will even wonder about her mental condition. In so many ways, women are in danger of being won down in our society. And to the extent that such norms prevail in our context, they need to be forsaken and they need to be uprooted. They are ungodly. But the ungodliness of shaming people is not limited to how we treat women. Other categories of people are also dismissed, shamed, and discarded. Insults are flying through the air like a massive plague of locusts, eating up fruitfulness, eating up all that is beautiful in our society, leaving our society barren and ugly. And it is. 
Many people do not even notice the locusts. I hear them buzzing in my ears, and they are splattered all over the windshield of my life. I cannot avoid them. Do you avoid hearing what I hear? Do you avoid seeing what I see? I urge you to listen and to look. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And she who has eyes to see, let her see. Matters of honor and shame are currently being trampled underfoot in American culture. In the public arena, few bother to care for a moment about how they are enhancing or destroying the reputations and well-being of people, groups, candidates, the parties they despise, the, 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 the people they oppose and the people they denounce. People don't really care. How many of you go on Facebook? Raise your hand. If you go on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm on there every day. And, and people don't care. Uh, I had a woman, uh, a Christian college professor, sent me a film clip ostensibly about uh, Rashida Tlaib. And it was Rashida Tlaib making a, a very caustic, anti-American uh, radical Muslim statement. Well, it turns out that the picture was not even Rashida Tlaib. The recording was about three years old, and it was somebody else. But it's been passed around as being Rashida Tlaib. So I said to this Christian woman, college professor, I said, it's wrong for you to smear Rashida Tlaib uh, this way when this is not really her and it's not her words, it's not even her picture. And she says, it doesn't make any difference. It's the kind of thing she would say. Can you believe that? This is how low we have fallen. The people you despise, even if you're a Christian college seminary professor, the people you despise it's all right for you to tell lies about them because the lies are probably true. <laughs> the Bible and Jewish culture are full of warnings against this kind of shaming and shameful behavior. You have, we have learned to treat this like it's no big deal. But to God, it's a very big deal. Jewish tradition strongly condemns public shaming, comparing it to murder and saying that the offender forfeits his or her own share in the world to come. The Talmud goes so far as to say, let a man rather cast himself into a fiery furnace than shame his fellow in public. That's what the Talmud says. Jesus agrees, but he makes it stronger. In the Sermon on the Mount, he sternly warns us. He says, I tell you this, that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. And whoever calls his brother a good-for-nothing will be brought before the Sanhedrin. And whoever says fool incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehinom. Listen to these words from the incarnate Son of God. Those who call their brother's names those who call others fool incur the fires of hell. If I tell you that, it's one thing. But if the Son of God who rose from the dead, who rules over 
all the nations of the earth who will be the judge of the living and the dead, when he says, you're in danger of hellfire by acting that way, I think it ought to catch our attention. What kinds of things do we say about Democrats? What kinds of things do we say about candidates? What kinds of things do we say about Republicans? What kinds of things do we say about immigrants, even those we deem illegal? What kinds of things do we say about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, you name it, people, as individuals and as a group? What kinds of things do we say about people who are whiter than we are, who are blacker than we are, who are richer than we are, who are poorer than we are, people who don't speak our language? What kinds of things do we say about Muslims as a group, Christians as a group, Jews as a group, Gentiles as a group? What do we say about these kinds of people, all of whom are made in the image of God and who deserve at least as much respect as God expects us to give the corpse of an executed murderer? What do you say about what we see happening every day on Facebook and in the media? What does God say? If all scripture is God-breathed and is valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living, then is it not true that from God's point of view, this kind of speech defiles the land and makes us more worthy of hell than of heaven? What kinds of things do we say about Democrats? What kinds of things do we say about all these categories? What do we say about people? all of whom were made in the image of God. So I want to leave you with four questions. Number one, what ought to be done to transform the way people in our circles speak to and about others? Can people speak critically without speaking insultingly and without labeling people in a negative fashion? I'm not saying don't have an opinion. I'm not saying don't disagree, but I'm saying can we disagree without insulting, without stigmatizing, without name-calling? It's very serious business. Secondly, if we don't bother to address this, do we imagine this, that this will be pleasing to our and I? Do we think that God will be just say, well, let boys will be boys, girls will be girls. It doesn't matter to me. Mm. Number three, how do you think society will be impacted if we do not reverse this trend of widespread, disrespectful speech? What is going to happen with our society? Number four, if you were going to write a speech, uh, rather, if you're going to write a speech ethic for, the, for American political discourse, let's say you were going to write a simple rule to govern political debates. I would suggest you might try beginning this way. Next. Next. Thank you. It is our decision that henceforth, when speaking of those with, of, of whom we disapprove or with whom we disagree, we will not blank. But instead we will endeavor to blank. In this manner, we seek to reduce blank 
and to increase blank in our nation. I would love to see people do that exercise. We would do well, in conclusion, to ponder the wisdom and challenge given by Peter, by Kepha, in his first letter. He says this, Be respectful to all. Keep loving the brotherhood, fearing God, and honoring the emperor. That's Caesar. Caesar was about as corrupt as anybody you can imagine. Sexually, politically, these are the kinds of people who killed their brothers and sisters, uh, 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 who had uh, uh, sexual playthings of both sexes, who ended up killing Christians. Nero made Christians into torches. He says, be respectful to all. Keep loving the brotherhood, fearing God, and honor the emperor. Salute the rank. Few would doubt that our society is not doing well in these areas. No excuse is good enough to justify leaving things the way they are. We have to do better. Listen for the locusts. Stop the plague. Then maybe our land will become green again. Let's work and pray that it does. Shabbat Shalom.